3: I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in your transmissions, I'm moon, waiting to be found, and I'm building rockets, I'm pointing them
2: to the moon. This is the Starship Sova, everybody welcome, hello and welcome to show 564, I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show, oh, what a show we have got today. Before that, though, did you like last week's show and the week before that, we did that 2 parter if anyone listened to that. Be interested to find out if you if you's like that, you know if you want more of like these bigger stories, or are you, are you quite happy with you know, one story a week, you know, beginning, middle and end, and you're off, and you finish for the next one the, the week after. Starships over at gmail.com. We will be interested to know. So Perion is standing at. 429. Last week it was 428. And a huge thank you to David Van De Is that David? Is that how Van De Is that how you pronounce it, sir? Thank you so much. David stepped up to the mark there and just crawled our way back up to, I th- well, I think we're around about four, was it 433 three, when, you know, by the time you get. It seems like we're never going to get past that because every time it comes around to the the new month and you get paid and then it just crashes back down again. But we will struggle on, you know, keeping this good ship going. If you can help out, that would be fantastic. So the main fiction today is Weather Girl by E.J. Swift, originally published in Infinity Wars. E.J. Swift is the author of Oris' Project Trilogy, a speculative fiction series set in a world radically altered by climate change. Her short fiction has been nominated for the Sunday Times EFG Short Story Award and the BSFA Award for Short Fiction and has appeared in a variety of publications from Solaris, Salt Publishing, Newcom Press and Jurassic London. Swift also contributed to Strata, an interactive digital project by Penguin Random House. Her latest novel is Paris Adrift, a tale of bartenders and time travel in the City of Light, narrated by Chloe Yates. As well as narrating, Chloe Yates writes odd tales... She has written many short stories and some poetry for the British Fantasy Award-winning independent press Fox Spirit Books and is currently working on bigger things for them. English-born, she currently lives in the middle of Switzerland with her bearded paramour, Mr. Y, and their disapproving dog, Miss Maud. Maudie, I think that's how you say it. And you can find it online and on Twitter. And there's two links there if you want to go over and say hello to Chloe. So... The Starship Suva is very
1: proud to present. Weather Girl by E.J. Swift Narrated by Chloe Yates Sometimes when she closed her eyes at night, she saw spirals, wheeling slowly against the backs of her eyelids, each one its own perfect fractal. She had never told anyone about this phenomenon. It seemed fantastical, Hardly worth mentioning, never mind bothering a professional about. But lately, in the moments of not-quite-consciousness before the alarm roused her, she had found that the spirals were still there, as though all through the night they had been present. Waiting. Morning, Maxwell. The security guard glanced up, glanced away. Morning, sir. As Leah passed through the lobby, she clocked other agency employees also averting their eyes. It was a standard reaction, and she was used to it. They called her the weather girl. She couldn't remember how she had found that out, but the moniker and her reputation had evidently stuck. She took the elevator to the basement and found her team assembled in the incident room. They were already busy with an array of models, and Leah sensed the anticipation of mismurmured exchanges. Something new had come up. She shrugged off her coat and accepted a cup of coffee that had just been brewed. All right, what have we got? Early indications, sir. A marker on the map indicated the area of tropical disturbance... Leah scanned the nearby coastlines, geopolitical factors slotting into place as she mentally noted each city or port. No one else has got this? We're pretty sure it's just us. How far are you with the modelling? Bring it up now. She watched as the projected pathways emerged one by one on the map. Her team had outlined a number of potential hit points, the result of complicated equations of global and local weather systems. Each pathway would produce a different ripple effect of infrastructural damage, loss of life, refugee outflow and resultant pressure on the home government and neighbouring countries. I'll be in my office. Send the files across. The unit's strategy was ostensibly simple. A typhoon could not be contained. What could be contained was information about its approach. Data could be massed or it could be leaked – the decision to mass was dependent upon the relationship with the destination sites, and that was where Leah came in. Was it more beneficial to national security for the typhoon to hit with maximum warning or with minimal? Would the resulting devastation be advantageous or damaging? Then there was the unpredictability factor, the complexities of typhoon tracking and their sometimes unexpected detours. It always came down to a gamble. Leah reviewed her team's reports. Usually she found it easy to settle her mind, but today for some reason she felt restless. The facts, Leah, she reminded herself. Just the pertinent facts. At the time of her appointment, she'd had psychological profiling and counselling to ensure she wasn't a psychopath, that she would not make decisions born out of bloodlust. They'd felt that was important. She'd felt it was ironic. So... Vulnerability indices, population density, national debt to the government in question, and, crucially, the latest metrics in the materials war. They were behind, and it was a problem. Her watch vibrated. She'd have gotten to turn it off, which was unlike her. Distracted, she tapped it against the desk and waited as a photograph unfolded. From Nicholas, naturally. There was no caption, he never explained the provenance of his photojournalism. The image was of a street market stall, fruit and vegetables stacked in bright pyramids, a pair of hands reaching to bag the produce. No filter. Even after three years, the impulse to reply was acute. Your cooking tonight, then, would be her default, or if she wanted to wind him up, nice lens flare would do the trick but instinctively she knew he didn't want her to respond. He wanted her to bear witness. How long had he been travelling now? Two years? He had given no warning of the abrupt severance of his city life. Not to Leah, unsurprisingly, but not to any of his friends either. One day he was an investment banker in a global financial centre... The next Leah was receiving images of weather-beaten temples, drowning island archipelagos, or dust-drenched cities. Each new photograph brought another tug of loss. Archive it, Hendrix. Her virtual assistant responded instantly. Image archived. Leah had never told Nicholas the details of what she did for a living. He had never told her if he'd guessed. It was not something she had dwelled upon in the past, but increasingly it returned to her, this question, how much he knew. She used to imagine conversations between them where she was forced to justify her work. He would question the ethics of it because it was Nicholas and because that was so expected from anyone of even average intelligence and empathy. He would drag up international treaties, conventions of human rights... She would respond with the imperative for security in a world whose boundaries were increasingly porous. She would talk about future-proofing, a safe nation for their children, theoretical now, and their children's theoretical children. About necessity. About the war. Invisible to most but inescapable for all. A war of electrical impulses and petabytes of data and hackers dueling in the cloud. They could not afford to fall behind. They could not afford to be magnanimous. In these imagined conversations, she talked Nicholas around to her way of thinking. But there was an element of doubt in his eyes which she could never quite erase. Removing the watch, she stuffed it into a pocket. Back to the task in hand. Pathways, possible outcomes. It was crunch time. On this occasion, as on every other, she did not hesitate to make a decision. She dictated her analysis and recommendations to Hendricks and Hendricks set up an encrypted link to the CIC for sign-off. The initial hacks ran successfully but in the end it was a false alarm. The disturbance absorbed harmlessly into the warm breezes of the region. Her team returned to surveillance. The data from the stillborn storm was dispatched to a second unit who would feed the analysis into their fledgling weather control database. The research unit was the latest fad of certain politicians, but thus far it had achieved little other than dumping large quantities of dirt from one side of the dust bowl to the other. The reality was that Leah's particular fiefdom was much the same as any other in the military. Days of quietude, sometimes boredom, interspersed with abrupt action and the adrenaline of an unfolding crisis. But not today, which meant she could confirm her date for the evening. It was dusk when they got into the city. By then Nicholas had been on the bus for eighteen hours, and the windows were thick with grime from the road. He was dozing, if you could call it that, a series of tumbles into sleep to be pulled back by a violent lurch of the bus as it navigated another hairpin turn. The driving had scared the shit out of him at first. Now he let his head drop, numb to the shock of it. Doze for five minutes, jerk awake doze. He woke to find the elderly woman in the adjacent seat shaking his arm, pointing at the window, repeating a few insistent words in a language he didn't understand because his translator was offline. But the woman's meaning was clear. The city. They were arriving. He couldn't see a thing, or rather, what he saw was light through a haze. Electricity muted. The haze grew stronger as the bus slowed in gathering traffic, crossing the bridge to the island. He stretched his arms above his head. There was no part of his body that did not ache. When they pulled into the depot, the bus shut down with a wheeze and everyone began to stand, grab their bags and talk at speed. He groaned in solidarity with the woman beside him. He could not imagine enduring the same journey at her age. For now, it was all part of this new stage in his life. Catharsis. No, that, that was the wrong word. Catharsis implied trauma, something he was running from, and whilst there had been challenging times, no event in his former life could be considered traumatic enough to run away from. If he were forced to describe his odyssey, he might say he was running towards something. He joined the shuffling queue of passengers desperate to get off the bus and gave the elderly woman a hand with her luggage, though the woman protested. She did not need help. It was probably true. She looked tougher than Nicholas. From outside he could see the thickness of the dust on the windows. He could have stood a spoon in it. Still, a city. Back to the connected world. He downloaded a map and went to find his hotel, which was somewhere downtown. There was no question of taking another tranche of public transport, so he started to walk, breathing in the warm cocktail of dust and pollution and, yes, a lick of salt, because he was back by the sea at last. Despite its precarious location, the city remained highly populated and he took his time ambling and people-watching. Halfway to the hotel, he came across a street market, The vibrancy of fruit and vegetables in the late afternoon sun drew him like a moth. He felt like he'd spent months under a veil of dust. He got his camera out. Most people use their watches, but Nicholas liked the proper kit. He framed the shot carefully, enough light to enhance, but not to dazzle. He examined the resulting image. Not bad, but too much lens flare. Two more attempts, and he had the shot he wanted. He synced camera to watch and sent the file, where it joined the litany of images he had sent his ex-wife from parts of the globe she had never visited. Leah never replied to these images, but the app told him she had viewed them, so he kept sending. Temples and shrines, monuments and palaces, market stalls and vendors and people in suits and people in camps, flowers and trash heaps, sometimes together. Women and men, children and animals... He never photographed himself. The photographs had been their only contact for almost three years. Always he was tempted to write something, even just a caption, a throwaway line. No words seemed adequate, or all words seemed false. He had tried so hard to be unaccountable, to become insignificant. Still, he wondered if he had to be counted by someone, however remote, however estranged if that was the truth of things. The hawker held up a starfruit, offered Nicholas a winning smile. His earbud murmured a translation. Best in the city, ask anyone you like. Language changed, but the marketplace was the same the world around. Bustling and haggling and thriving, a great shout of life. He snapped another photo, camera focus on the yellow mangoes in the foreground, with the blurred smiling face of the hawker behind. He didn't send this one. Not everything should be given. Leah found her date, Don, sitting at the bar. He was early. She was pleased to discover he was as his profile had suggested, lean, intelligent face, expensively dressed and carrying himself with the easy grace of a confident man. Leah liked him at once. She slid into the adjacent seat. "'Sorry to have kept you waiting.' "'Not at all. You're exactly on time. "'Here, I've taken the liberty to order you a drink.' "'There were two glasses of tequila on the counter as yet untouched. "'He evidently knew his way around the menu. "'They talked the usual preamble out of politeness rather than necessity. "'She felt the flicker of attraction between them "'and it was easy to imagine taking him home tonight. "'But that had been the last few dates "'and she was ready for something different.' He had a way of watching her that made her think he was waiting for the main event. Sure enough, after a time, he sat back and regarded her, eyes inquisitive. You don't mention your occupation in your profile? Ah, that question. Is it something god-awful? I guess that depends on how you define the military. You're in the military? "'Slight rise of inflection, a relaxed curiosity. "'It gets worse,' she said. "'A classified section of it. "'Really? "'Really. "'I can't tell you what I do. "'Or you'd have to kill me, etc.' "'He took a sip of tequila. "'Is that why your VA has a surname rather than a first name? "'Army culture.' "'Why, what's yours called?' "'Gina.' "'I never gave it much thought, to be honest.' So, how long in the military? Almost fifteen years. Uh uh-huh. He nodded, processing this. You're divorced, aren't you? What makes you say that? You can always tell. He smiled. It's not a problem. She returned the smile, raised her empty glass. Good. Same again. At home, she paused in the doorway, taking in the layout of the apartment unmistakably that of someone single even in the gloom, the blink of the city through the glass. She lay on the couch fully clothed except for her ridiculous shoes, her body buzzing with a euphoria which was partially but not entirely induced by the tequila. She didn't often drink on a weeknight, a self-imposed rule. she had never had a problem with control. She suspected that had been a deal-breaker with Nicholas, although he had not said so explicitly. In fact, he had said very little at the end. Don was irrefutably present in a way that Nicholas was not. There had always been an, a theory on us was too strong a word, a lightness about Nicholas? Or perhaps she was being unfair. Perhaps that was retrospective analysis, a response to his current meanderings. When they had met, it was a surprise to find he worked in the cutthroat environment of banking. He'd impressed her, and he'd worked so hard to get where he was. The background check had saddened her in a way she didn't expect, and she put it away and pretended she'd never seen it. Admit it, she thought. You still miss him dreadfully. Pointless, maudlin reflection at the end of a good night. She put Nicholas from her mind. Focus on Don. Focus on the present. Hendricks scanned her biometrics and instructed her to drink plenty of water before retiring. In bed she fell asleep at once, a spiral dancing behind her eyelids. Nicholas spent the morning exploring. Like so many coastal cities, this place had been abandoned by government funding. The banks and the glitterati had long since decamped to the mainland, and the city was left to fester where it squatted in the face of the rising seas. In buildings along the waterfront, the lowest floors had been abandoned altogether and were swamped at high tide. People hung on. People were harder to move than institutions. They had affiliations. Call it loyalty, call it stubbornness. Catastrophe came and they remained. Like the huge shopping malls he wandered through, once the province of designer-retailers, now occupied by cheap stores and squatters. There was atmosphere about the city somewhere between careless and carefree, a place that no longer had anything to prove. That suited Nicholas fine. He'd lived two lives, stasis and motion, accounted and unaccounted. His first had been about money. His second, he hadn't figured out yet. When he left the bank, he had sold everything, house, car, valuables. He undertook the first tour in a matter of months. Speed had been important then. He needed to feel he was accelerating away from the past. Now he was on his second tour, and it was about slowness, eking the maximum out of time. Nothing would pass him by. He was propertyless, but he had means. He could keep going for a hundred years. How many villages, towns, cities did he pass through now? He'd lost count. In the four decades he had been alive, the world had become increasingly strange and people strange to one another. He had visited cities half-submerged and cities under siege from plagues of frogs or snakes or insects and cities in closed habitats that had once been designed for other planets, hostile to life. Rich cities and poor cities. There were always winners, though the winners were even fewer this century than the last. Of course, he thought. He couldn't do this forever. And then, why not? And then he wasn't sure. On the other side of the mall, he refilled his water bottle and watched a sweeper bot making its patient way along the gutter. That was his father's job when he was growing up. When the bots took the job, they took something else from him in two, something that was harder to replace than income. Ever since he was small, he remembered his father telling him, You can do anything you want. You're smart, smarter than me. You can do anything. After the bots, his father still said those things, but the mantra was harder to believe. He was ill at the end. Nicholas looked after him, and afterwards he did not allow himself time to mourn, because the only way to honour his father was to prove the mantra right. He worked back-to-back jobs to put himself through the education he'd missed, and then he went into the highest-paying profession he could think of, because security was an imperative. On his ascent, he met his ex-wife, a woman who at first glance seemed so self-assured he was surprised to sense the uncertainty in her smile, as though she hadn't expected to be singled out, to be noticed. By then he had almost forgotten the feel of poverty, and she must have assumed he had always known a privileged life. He might have felt bad keeping things from Leah, if she didn't have secrets too. Sometimes she cried out in her sleep, a sharp, fearful sound that woke him every time. He would open his eyes, blink in a moment of disorientation, his unease dissipating as he adjusted to the absence of light and made out the shape of his wife under the sheets, her breathing settling as she fell back into deeper sleep. It's okay, he'd murmur. I'm here. You're okay. When he asked her about her dreams, she said she didn't dream. She never had. He believed her. That is, he believed she did not remember. But there was something, an intimation of darkness, in that cry. This, more than anything else, told him that what she did every day must be something terrible. In the early days, they joked about the classified thing. He asked questions playfully, but with a keen eye to see how she would react. Was it drone strikes? "'What about interrogation? "'Do you torture people, darling?' "'He had never asked it so bluntly, but he had come close, "'and she would always smile and say, "'You know I can't tell you anything,' "'as if it really were a joke. "'Only once she said, "'There are things.' "'Then she shook her head. "'No. "'And he would stand at the counter chopping onions "'and wondering if his wife could be a state-sanctioned inflictor of pain.' He looked for marks on her skin, but there was nothing to suggest anything other than life behind a desk. What someone did for a living wasn't everything, but it was a lot. And if you were ignorant of the specifics, essentially you were admitting you were married to two people. One you knew intimately, the other not at all. Which was fine, as long as you could accept it. At some point, Nicholas decided they wouldn't have children. He thought he would probably be able to withstand finding out who she really was, but their theoretical children might not. He didn't tell Leah his decision, just quietly booked the procedure in case her birth control failed. Anyway, they had a comfortable life, and who needed kids to justify their existence? That was how his life went, in a whirl of shares and assets and friends over for dinner and holidays in destination locations. On the days he got home after Leah, she massaged his shoulders and ran him baths which they ended up sharing. She liked to look after people, to make them feel good. And in the night sometimes, she cried out, but did not remember. Until one day he knew he couldn't put anything more between himself and the not knowing, and he told her he wanted a divorce. He'd hurt her, he knew that, and it had broken his heart. "'Morning, Maxwell.' The security guard glanced up, glanced away. "'Morning, sir.' They held the elevator for her. She was thinking about her conversation with Don, fifteen years a soldier. Stated so bluntly, her career sounded like the institution it was. It might have been different. A doctorate in mathematics had been beckoning. The agency got their offer in first, and with it came the chance to serve her country.' She did her time in intelligence, quickly proved herself a valuable analyst. She learned things she wished she hadn't, knowledge she would keep at all costs from the people she loved, things she could never, ever have told Nicholas, a good person who believed in the goodness of others. He didn't need to know what it took to preserve that kind of innocence. One day she was approached by one of the Black Ops Brigade. It was shortly after she met Nicholas, at a time when she'd begun to doubt that she'd ever meet anyone. Doubt whether she deserved to meet anyone. They had a question. Would she be interested in something more developmental? Ten years later, here she was. The meteorologists had picked up a new disturbance. They had the reports ready in the incident room. She scanned the briefing with her coffee, the first sip on the verge of scalding. She checked the status of any military operations in the area, open or covert. This was an ideal scenario, out of the way from major shipping and lanes. The storm, if it became a storm, was worth masking, but as usual she made herself stand for a minute, facing the map before making the request for sign-off. In this way, the decision became part of her. She hated those agents who tried to shirk responsibility If you couldn't own your actions, you shouldn't be in this line of work. The green light came through within minutes. She gathered her team. Okay, everyone, we've got the all clear. Phase one, make this clean. Over to the hackers. Psychologically, this was the worst part of the operation. Mathematics, she understood, but cyber warfare was an ever-evolving science impenetrable to those on the outside. She could only observe as the hackers got to work. Inevitably, they were dubbed the Borgs of the unit. There was always a particular quiet at the start of the hack as the Borgs sunk into a trance-like state. Their main target was foreign satellites, scrambling any enemy detection of the weather system, feeding them with false information, but after that local communications became paramount. The shipping forecasts could blow their cover or a lone fishing vessel caught in the path of advancing winds. The Borgs worked frenziedly, They had a tail to cover their tracks, although sometimes they would lay down breadcrumb trails to some rogue faction or nation state, tantalising ghosts to muddy the political waters when the shit hit the fan. After a while, someone said, We've got them. Good. Keep monitoring. The atmosphere relaxed slightly, although this was only the beginning. For the next 48 hours, the hackers would work in shifts as the foreign satellites fought back and the meteorologists tracked the storm across the ocean, laying down a black hole of communications along its pathway. There came a point when masking was no longer possible, but by then the damage would have been done and vital preparation time lost. That was when Phase 2 kicked in, bombarding the region with a sea of fake news to create mass hysteria. This was the weather race or, as the Liberals like to dub it, the Storm Wars. They had been behind at first, still were on the materials front, too many deniers littering politics a belief that experts were disposable. But soon enough, denial had become an impossibility. Humanity had waged war on the planet. After centuries of pouring toxins down its throat, a carbon-neutral economy had come too late. Now the planet was fighting back. The contents of its armoury were truly awe-inspiring. Earth, having spent the previous 10,000 years as a rather dull haven, had morphed into a malevolent chameleon. You could not help but admire the force of the planet's fury, even as you quaked in your wind-and-rain-proofed bunker. And just when you thought the planet had exhausted its repertoire for destruction, some new horror would emerge. The meteorologists had invented new scales of measurement, Superstorm was an obsolete term. In the Anthropocene world, survival had replaced progress, and survival was dependent upon infrastructural resilience. Buildings, power grids, servers, the integrity of the cloud, scientists running tests on the resistance and flexibility of the supersteels and nanoskins were the new soldiers. Get the science. If necessary, steal the science, or even the scientists, get the patents and monetize the fuck out of it. That was how you climbed to the top of the new world order in the Anthropocene. Her country was far from immune, both from the planet and from the hackers on the other side. Five years ago, a counterattack had left the East Coast mercilessly underprepared. You could argue that everything since then had been about revenge but that would be an emotional argument. The entire farce was akin to entering a boxing ring. Whatever the outcome, you knew you would come out damaged, but ultimately the winner was the one left standing. That's pragmatism, Nicholas, she told him silently. The only way to guarantee there's any future at all. But Nicholas didn't answer, disregarded her quietly, and the doubt was there as it always was. Hours passed, her team kept their vigil, the Borg switched shifts. A strange feeling, watching the birth of a typhoon on screen. As the satellite images refreshed, wisps of white began to merge and densify. A foreshadow of the shape to come, outstretched arms gathering ever greater swathes of cloud as a storm moved across the ocean, anchored by the bold dot of its eye a shape replicated endlessly in nature from seashells to flower heads to distant galaxies. The beauty of its fractal pattern was irrefutable. Odd to think that such artistry could wreak so much wanton destruction. But wasn't that the eternal lesson of nature? One of her team beckoned her over, "'Look, sir, I think we've got a tandem.' "'So we have.' They watched, Mesmerised, a second typhoon was emerging in the wake of the first. Less of a rarity than it used to be with so much energy bouncing around the atmosphere. An alert from Hendricks announced she had mail. The first was Don, asking if she wanted to join him for dinner that evening. She shot a message back. In the middle of something. Give me a couple of days? The response was prompt. This an international woman of mystery thing? She replied, something like that. The other was from Nicholas. She glanced at the photograph, was about to tell Hendricks to archive it, then paused. Hendricks, can you run a location check on that? Processing now. Thanks. No doubt she was being overcautious, but it was worth the check. The wind was kicking up. Somewhere around here was a noodle cafe he remembered from his first tour. A few streets later he found it and ducked inside for shelter and something to eat. He ordered a spicy broth and when it arrived leaned over the bowl appreciatively. The door banged open with the wind. The proprietor went outside and returned, frowning. She said a few words to the clientele at large who nodded and sucked at their noodles. ''Storm,'' murmured the translator through his earbud. ''A storm on the way.'' By the time he finished lunch the wind was consistently strong He debated heading back to the hotel, but no weather warnings had been issued, and he wanted to visit the harbour. He took the tram north, and from there walked down to the front. His heart rejoiced to see water again. The harbour was still magnificent, even if it had lost the glamour of decades past. He could see the rows of towers on the waterfront that had once borne the names of economic giants, before survivalist technologies surpassed those of consumer in the marketplace. Nicholas had invested his clients' money in weatherproofing, engineering solutions designed to keep out the water, the wind and the dust. His clients had done well. Weatherproofing was an expensive business and few of the places he had visited on his first tour could afford such measures. Skirting the harbour was the shanty town that must have sprung up when the money went. Hundreds of makeshift abodes perched on stilts on floating platforms and in the damp lee of the sea walls. He watched the ferries making their way across to the mainland. The harbour waters were being stirred up by the winds and the wave crests were very white. The ferries ploughed onwards. He raised his camera. The smallness of the boats against the magnitude of water, that was what he wanted. Just a fringe of the mainland in the top ribbon of the image. He could feel the force of the wind against his forearm, the camera strap flapping beneath. Perhaps it was time to head back. Hendrix had a location match. Leah glanced at her watch. She read what was there, read it again. A second past, where she seemed to have no thoughts at all, was lost, and everything lost to her. Her world reduced to that tiny piece of text. It must be wrong. It couldn't be right. She blinked. The text remained clear as day. She took a step towards her office. What's your percentage on that, Hendricks? 98% certain. She shut the door with more force than necessary. On the other side, she leaned heavily against it, her mind cycling frantically. Her team had one crucial rule, and that was that once a cloak had been laid down, it was laid down for everyone. Nothing went beyond the instant room. It was Leah's rule, enshrined in military protocol. Shakily, she raised her watch. You idiot, Nicholas. You fucking... A knock at the door. Sir? Give me a minute. Sir, we've got a potential problem. I need an authorization code from you. I'll be right there, she said sharply. He retreated. She stood, feeling the onset of something close to panic, a deluge of data across her brain. Only the pertinent facts, Leah, the facts. Hendricks, I need you to contact Nicholas. She instructed her assistant to wrap the message in every possible encryption. This was against all protocol. The hotel dining room was busier than on the previous evening. A steady stream of rain had begun an hour or so earlier, and other guests had also returned to escape the inclement weather. Nicholas listened to the chatter of his fellow diners through his earbud. The translators had improved immensely over the past five years, although in a busy space with multiple conversations, it was a challenge to piece together the disparate shards of dialogue. Back in his tenth-floor room, he turned on the news to see if there was any information about the weather. No alerts. He stretched out on the bed to review the day's photography and sent the one of the harbour to Leah. It was a tease of a picture hinting at the mainland shoreline without revealing it. He planned to read for a while, but the softness of the bed made him sleepy. Just before he drifted off, he heard his watch vibrate and leaned over to switch it off without looking at the message. He woke in the dark to a howl, convinced that he was back in the old apartment that had dreamed caused Leah to cry out. ''It's okay,'' he murmured. ''I'm here.'' The howl did not stop. He remembered that he was alone and in a hotel room on the other side of the world, and then he realised that the sound was not anything human, but the wind. Lights, he muttered. The room warmed slowly from black to brown to amber, but stopped short of its maximum brightness. The rain streaked window reflected his prone figure on the bed, the sky black beyond the glass. A dim muddle of light through the rain. He checked the time on the wall display and was taken aback to discover that it was nine in the morning. He got up and dressed. After an initial trickle, there was no water from the taps, even if he'd wanted to wait around for a shower, and was lacing his shoes when something slammed into the glass with shocking force. He felt his heart accelerate to a sprint. He stared at the window. A crack ran from sill to ceiling, hairline threads sprouting on either side as he watched, Some part of his brain said, "'It's going to go, you have to move,' and he grabbed his bag and seized the door handle. It wouldn't turn. Panic rising, he could hear the groan of the glass. "'You need the card. "'An awful creaking. "'It's going to go. "'The pass. "'Where was the pass?' He saw it on the table by the kettle, slapped it against the door and watched the light turn green. He threw himself into the corridor. He was five steps along the carpeted hallway when he heard the crash and knew the window had blown." He thought of glass splinters exploding through the room, imagined himself still asleep in the bed. Nausea flooded him, and he slumped against the wall, his breathing shallow. Up and down the floor, doors were opening, perhaps awakened by the sound, hands rubbing at eyes, confused voices, quick exchanges across the corridor. He continued towards the stairwell. Don't take the lift, even if it's working. Trying to banish the image of those lethal shards. Downstairs was chaos. A number of guests must have vacated their rooms first thing this morning and were now gathered in the lobby with their luggage, unable to leave and barraging the night manager with questions. Others, like Nicholas, were emerging dazedly into the dining room, still in their nightwear. A man was bleeding, a member of staff bandaging his head wound inexpertly. Other staff were putting up storm shutters. Too late, he thought. The wind and rain were a relentless shrill outside. There was no hot food. Even if the kitchen staff had been able to get in, he supposed there was no power, but a porter was laying out a cold buffet. A couple of families encouraged their children to get some breakfast and gradually the rest of the diners filed up to the tables. Nicholas took some juice and wished there were coffee. Behind the buffet, another member of staff started arguing with the porter, apparently over the food. People exchanged glances and began to eat more quickly. Nicholas checked his watch. No signal, which meant his translator, was out of action. He had one message, though, which must have been delivered earlier. The message was short. Leave the island as soon as you get this and get as far inland as you can. It was from an unknown sender, but there was only one person it would have come from. Well, the city was under siege, you couldn't go anywhere. He supposed Leah had seen reports on the news, though the message had been delivered hours earlier. He chose not to pursue that line of thought, switched off his watch and walked through the ground floor of the hotel, wanting answers but not understanding a word of the panicked discussions until he located another tourist. The woman was attempting to charge her watch, but evidently without success. He coughed. Excuse me. Do you know anything about what's going on, my translators down? The woman straightened. Yep, mine too. A right mess, isn't it? From what I can gather, the grid's down so the hotel's running off a backup generator. Seems they've cut any extraneous power sources. I'm guessing we've lost the water supply too, my taps weren't working. No one seems to have seen this one coming. He looked towards the storm-shuttered windows. There must be somewhere we can get to. "'Honey, have you seen outside? "'Windspeed's already clocking 300k, and this is just the edge of it. "'There won't be any transport off the island now.' "'There were more people in the city than there should have been,' the woman explained. "'That was the first problem. "'An evacuation process that should have taken place over 48 hours "'had been crammed into two. "'She showed Nicholas some video on her watch taken before the signal went down. "'Waves 20 metres high imploding against the first line of buildings.' Tidal surges torrenting through the streets, flooding the lower levels of the city. "'We're not much higher up here. It might flood,' said the woman matter-of-factly. Nicholas replayed the footage. He thought of the shanty towns he had seen around the harbour. How many people had remained in those stilt houses, those floating shacks, when the storm hit? Hundreds of people are going to die,' he said. "'It'll be thousands, said the woman." that same matter-of-fact tone. Nicholas stared at her. The woman sighed. I'm an aid worker. I usually operate further south than here. After a while, you stop hearing the numbers. It doesn't mean I don't care. No, said Nicholas. Of course not. They're calling it Mayana," said the woman. What? The Typhoon. Oh. On the other side of the room... A young woman was sobbing. Her friend went out last night, said the aid worker. She hasn't come back. The satellite images refreshed and refreshed again. Leah watched as the spiral revolved in its inexorable formations, moving steadily west. The second spiral on its tail, the two engaged in some ancient, deadly dance. She watched as the typhoon smashed into the coastline. As the hackers lifted their blackout, news footage began to leak through, helicopters flying at the edges of the weather system, video clips that had been uploaded before the city went dark. There was a clip from a car caught on the bridge in the attempted evacuation, a wall of water bearing down upon its occupants, screams from those inside. Nothing more had been heard after the upload. She watched as the hackers tied off loose ends, erased their trails, sighed, and stretched their aching bodies, no doubt thinking of their warm beds after a long shift. She watched as a meteorologist talked excitedly about reports of wind speeds surpassing the known record. Her message to Nicholas had been delivered, but he hadn't replied. She instructed Hendrix to send another. The second one failed. She asked Hendricks to check for new messages every few minutes, although she knew her assistant would alert her the moment anything came through. Her messages became increasingly frantic. Did you get out? Tell me you got out. It would be two days before the eye passed over, and then the other side of the eye wall would let rip. In her head, she ran through evacuation scenarios, each one more outlandish than the next. Even if it were possible to locate him... She knew better than anyone that none of them would work. When the lobby flooded, everyone moved up a floor. Not all of the food and water supplies had been moved upstairs in time and everything was rationed. By the second day, his throat was continually parched, his stomach rumbling. Guests and staff slept where they could. The children were offered the beds, but their parents preferred to keep them away from the windows, even with the storm shutters up. From the corridors you could hear the wind moving through the upper floors in a continual wail. He began to lose track of time, dozed at intervals, woke to find someone shaking his arm, and thought himself back on the bus, arriving in the city. Hey, hey, wake up! It was the aid worker. We're going foraging, she said. Wanna come? We could use the help. Has it stopped? No, but we're in the eye, so the wind's dropped. It was eleven at night. The woman had organised a small party. They were going to make their way across the street to the row of hotels opposite. The water on the ground floor was waist-deep and cold. They waded across the lobby and one by one pushed through the revolving doors. The water rose a few inches as he stepped into the street. The wind had dropped. The air was preternaturally still. Nicholas looked up and saw stars. It seemed inconceivable. A pretend sky. The aid worker ran a torch over the water, indicating the building's opposite, and instructed them to form a chain. And watch out for debris! Nicholas quickly realised the water was occupied. Pieces of furniture, the expelled contents of shops and households, were all floating about. The lead person yelled and stopped. Nicholas saw a darker mass looming ahead and a car floated past. He couldn't see if there was anyone inside. They kept going, It wasn't far, but seemed endless. Nicholas was last in the chain. With his free hand, he pushed away at anything moving towards him. Halfway across, he touched the roughness of fabric, and then cold, wet skin, and he couldn't suppress a shout. The body drifted slowly away. A yell from the other end of the chain. They'd reached the opposite side of the street... The other hotel was not much better equipped than theirs, but the manager in charge allowed them to take some bottled water supplies, which they could float back across the street. They moved on to the next building. Nicholas's hands were numb from immersion. Once, the torch flickered over the hump of limbs and then a face was illuminated, stark beneath the orange light. The torch moved away quickly. It was easier not to know. They could feel the wind starting to rise again and the aid worker declared it time to return. In the thin starlight, Nicholas noticed the building adjacent to the hotel had also lost its windows and appeared to be listing. Back in the hotel, he removed his soaking trousers, shoes and socks and accepted the offer of a towel. Sat in the corridor in the towel and his damp boxes. He noticed people around him were starting to sniff and cough. The invading sea was chilling the city. He turned on his watch, hoping for a signal before the other side of the eye wall hit, but there was nothing. He read again the message. Leave the island as soon as you get this. He did the maths, slowly because he was hungry and dehydrated and exhausted from the wading through water. It had been sent ten hours before the official warning. Hours before the disaster of the attempted evacuation. The meaning was stark. He wondered if he had always known, if something in his subconscious had linked the day she worked overnight to certain cataclysmic events around the world. But if this was a revelation, it didn't feel as revelation ought. There was no enlightenment, just a kind of shutting down. Of course, she might not have been involved directly. She might have had a tip-off. He wanted desperately to believe that, to believe her the woman he'd been introduced to all those years ago, with a beautiful, uncertain smile. But he knew in his heart that wasn't true. It was too big to grasp at, he supposed, and he was weary and couldn't escape the idea that whatever he had been running towards, this was it. He thought of the aid worker's statement that thousands would die and wondered whether torture would have been easier to bear. He looked up and found one of the children staring at him. You can be anything you want to be, he murmured. The child looked at him like he was a lunatic. (laughs) Who but a lunatic would say such a thing? Besides, they had no language in common. Only this place. This end. The wind had returned. He thought of Leah crying out in the night, the flutter of her breath warm against his face when he leaned over to check whether she had woken, to gently stroke her face. It's okay. He curled into a ball and put his hands over his ears. After, there was a list of the dead. The number of foreign nationals grew longer, but he was not on it. She instructed Hendrix to run facial recognition software over footage of the devastation, checking bodies alive and not. There were no matches. She allowed herself to entertain the possibility that he had got out in time, asked a friend to run an identity check on transactions in the city for the 24 hours before the typhoon hit. The list was small, but confirmed Nicholas's location. There was a tram ticket, lunch at a local cafe. She remembered her first successful hack, the jubilation in the room when they realised they'd done it, they'd successfully hidden a cyclone. She'd found it hard to suppress the feeling that the cyclone was working for them, had to remind herself they were not wielding a man-made weapon. But it was nonetheless a weapon of mass destruction, and thousands of people would die for lack of warning. Still, they were jubilant. Afterwards she had gone home and Nicholas had sensed her adrenaline, asked if there was something to celebrate. She shook her head. Bit of a breakthrough, that's all. They ordered takeaway and started watching a film, paused it halfway through when she turned to kiss him. She fell asleep against him in the second half. Even now there was a chance he would be found. Hundreds of people had been washed out to sea and others trapped underground or under collapsed buildings. It was still possible he was alive. But as the weeks passed, so did the possibility. Operation Mayana, as it would be known in the classified files, counted as a success. The damage would run into the trillions and surveys reported public morale at an all-time low. No one would be thinking of the materials war. She saw spirals every night now. Her dreams brought her visions of figures trapped inside them, stretched and melted into the cyclonic coils. All of them were Nicholas, although none of them had his face. Instead, they were faceless, the faceless millions. She did not remember the dreams, but always she woke to find that her face was wet and the spirals were waiting for her.
2: And there you go. Big thank you to EJ. EJ, thank you so much indeed. Oh, very nice indeed. Very tasty. And Chloe, what a lovely voice. Just sweet as anything. Thank you so much. So we've got some news to tell you, but I can't tell you just yet, which is a total, I understand that, a total cop out for me, but I know it and I'm really excited about it. It's just unreal. Do you know what I mean? It's just, I couldn't be, I couldn't be happier. But I've got to, I've got to get the nod first. And as soon as I do, I will, I will let you know but it's just amazing, to be honest. Absolutely amazing. So that is today's show. Short and sweet. I hope you liked it. Let's see. Let us know about longer stories. Starships over at gmail.com. And help out, man. Patreon, please. Don't like this crashing and burning every month. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me.
3: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get much I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm mooning, waiting to be found And I'm building rockets to the moon But the work is going slowly Won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I wanna talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say you're so far from here and at best i move slow so I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go can you reach me is my signal getting we rocket ships I need only the will to fly I'm still building word by word And I'll get out there By and by I'll get out there By and by I'll get out there I'll get out there By and by I'll get out there
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your
0: next order. Quince.com slash style.
2: Planning for your next trip?